Uh, if you want to follow along, um, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't have your own, you could take that with you as our gift to you. Um, we're also going to be uh, projecting it behind us. We're going to be spending the majority of our time today on page one of the Bible. Um, so if you've come and you don't really know your way around the Bible, that's okay. Just open to the beginning. And um, this is Genesis. This is a series on beginnings. So I want to pick up on a theme that I started last week, and I'm going to spend another week about the lenses that God intended us to read Genesis through. It's, it's critical because Genesis then becomes the lens through which we read the rest of the Bible through. So to be able to get the rest of the Bible correct, you need to be reading Genesis correctly. And I, I didn't make up these lenses. I want to be clear on that. God did. There's so much that can be gleaned from these first couple of words in the beginning God. Um, there's so much to glean that he actually repeats it multiple times throughout the scriptures and then brings it into the New Testament and begins to talk about our Lord Jesus through these lenses. As Ravi Zacharias once said when talking about all the miracles in the Bible, he said, it all hinges on what you do with the term in the beginning. If you take those words as true and at face value, then everything else is not only possible, but plausible. So I say often that familiarity can actually rob us of being able to be intimate with the text that we're looking at. If you've been around church or the Bible for any length of time, then you have probably heard the phrase, in the beginning, God, many, many times, and maybe heard it taught on many, many times. But I want to strongly encourage you not to let familiarity rob you of the importance of these words or to look past them and to take the time to consider them in their context that they were given and how radical they would have been to the original audience and how radical they are still today. So when we stop to appreciate how God and why God chose to begin a book about himself, it actually gives us the lenses to be able to interpret a book about himself rightly. So as I seek to kind of recalibrate our lenses as we begin this book that begins the Bible, like last week I have a few thoughts about what the book of Genesis is not before I get into what the book of Genesis is. That's a weird way of saying what I'm trying to say, but what I'm trying to get at is I think this is a worthy two-minute little rabbit trail and it might prove to be helpful to some of you. So three things that the book of Genesis is not. The book of Genesis is not primarily a science book, though there is a lot of science and all the science found in Genesis is accurate and true and without error or contradiction by anything by, that has been learned by science. The book of Genesis is not primarily a history book, but it contains the beginnings of and the purposes of all of human history, and all of the history is perfect and true that is written in it and without any contradiction. And it's never been contradicted by anything that has been learned by history. And it is not primarily a book of anthropology, which means the study of man or the origins of man, although it does contain the origins of man and the most important things that have ever happened in the history of man. And all of its anthropology is perfect and true and without error or contradiction by anything that will be learned through the study of anthropology. 
So three things that the book of Genesis primarily is. Genesis is a theology book. I hesitated to use that term because I know that some people just get intimidated by the term theology and I didn't want it to be a stumbling block for anybody. But if we strip down the term to its roots, it just means that Genesis is a book about God. I know it sounds like we should be able to just assume that as we go to it, but we can't assume it to the extent that you would think. People often approach Genesis with an agenda, and the only way that their agenda will match God's agenda is if they look to this as a book about God. Number two, one like this. Number two, Genesis is a worship manual telling this new tribe of people how to worship this God as unique in the midst of and coming out of a polytheistic world. And number three, it is deeply devotional book where God was provoking their hearts towards devotion to the true God, which is in part why I wanted to go over because what it's not, because those things that I named are actually pretty important as long as you treat them as a secondary focus. But much of what I've read or heard taught on Genesis takes our minds off of worship because it focuses so into the secondary focuses because it's being taught with this edge to it of how do I teach this to answer the skeptic that we can lose the primary focus of how do we worship the one true God through this text. So it's important to recalibrate that. So I want to take a look how God reveals himself, what he reveals about himself, and how that was intended to stir our worship and awe and devotion to a creator God who is altogether unique. So what we're going to do is, in honor of the six days of creation, we're going to take talk about six things God reveals about himself from his creation. I want to ask you a question that I'm going to pray before I jump into our text. When is the last time your heart has been captivated by awe? I mean, just sincere awe of the one true God. Do you remember? When I ask these questions, I don't presume on anybody that the answer is a long time. Maybe it was this morning in worship. Maybe it's right now as you engage his word. Um, But ask yourself, uh, this book is written to give us a perspective of awe. When is the last time my heart was in awe? God, I pray that we would be honest with that question. As we look to your word, and we would leave here in awe of our wonderful creator, in Jesus' name, amen. So, first, we learn that God self-authenticates himself, and that God is okay with that. I'll have these behind me for any of you note-takers, but in verse 1, again, it says, in the beginning... God created the heavens of the earth. Let me explain what I mean by self-authentication. I know it's a big sounding word. It's not um, as confusing as it might sound like. Uh, It's this idea that something's existence, something's explaining its existence by using itself to reference itself as the starting point of its own existence. It's kind of like the argument for the authority of Scripture. How do we know that the Bible is the true and inspired Word of God? Well, because the Bible says that it's the true and inspired Word of God. 
Um, and then people can look at you and say, well, doesn't that have some circular reasoning? Um, you know what, guys? I just want to encourage you. You don't need to argue about that when people call that circular reasoning. We have other rational proofs. We could go into a great number of rational proofs, and there's some value in that. But God simply just starts off with saying, in the beginning, God, and self-authenticates himself. So it's circular in its nature that it does double back on itself. But I, I just want to encourage you to think to this. If, if you're uncomfortable with this idea of something self-authenticating itself, every single worldview that people hold out there begins with the idea of self-authentication. And it's impossible to explain beginnings without circular reasoning, regardless of what you hold to. And it's often the people that are quickest to point out the nature of the circular reasoning. They're the ones that are the most blinded to the fact that they are entrenched in circular reasoning. Uh, I mean, let's take the most humanistic, rational perspective. They work off this belief that at some point, nothing became something, right? At some point, they, they have three basic tenets. At some point, nothing became something. At some point, non-matter became matter. And at some point, non-energy produced energy. So they have theories on what takes place after these three things happen, but they begin by just self-authenticating the idea that somehow nothing became something, and you're supposed to just grant that premise. Yet they would point out that we have circular logic by saying that God self-authenticates its own existence. So we're working off this idea that someone created something. And there is reason, and there is logic, and there is science, and there's every other mental discipline that could show this to be reliably true. And I'd like to clarify something I said last week because I think it was unnecessarily confusing and a few people came up and asked me questions about it. I am not saying that there is no value in learning these rational or philosophical or logical proofs for the existence of God. They can be a really rewarding study. They could be a really edifying study for your faith. And the deeper that you go, you're only going to go deeper into your walk with Jesus. You're not going to get to some place where you say, oh, no, this is shaking my faith. Because the deeper you go into truth, all truth is God's truth. And all truth is going to point you back to Christ. But my point is, we don't have to start there with those arguments. Because God didn't start there. We start with God because God started with God when he told his story. Look, you don't need to seek permission to invite God into the retelling of God's story. That's what I'm trying to, do you guys understand that? Like, it's so critical that you get that. If you don't get that, the rest of Genesis really begins, you're building your ladder against the wrong wall. You don't have to invite God to be able to be told about in his own story. So, let me take this down from the philosopher's perspective and bring it to the worshiper's perspective. Maybe it's just me, and I'm curious, what are the things out there that would just inspire awe in you? But I'm more amazed by watching a documentary that explores the depths of the Marianas Trench than I am with watching things that give me proofs for the existence of God. Because I don't, I don't need 
the existence of God to be proven. But when I think about the wonders of the depths of that trench, things that have been existing down there ever since God created it, things that nobody has seen since God created it. Science is just giving us the ability to be able to get down there and see these things. So ever since creation, those things existed there simply because the artistry of God wanted them to be there and because he found them pleasurable for his own existence and he knew that someday you, his creation made in his own image, would be able to find those things and be astonished as you see them. Isn't that mind-blowing? Or when you consider out of all the years that man has been on this planet, it's only been the last 50 years that we've been able to explore space and we're just scratching the surface of it. And there's so much out there to just fill our minds with this incomprehensible brilliance of God that why waste time hanging out in the doorway when he's calling you further in and deeper still? Number two, we learn that God presents himself as holy and unique. Again, just staying in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We touched on this last week, but in order to understand this text rightly, you need to put yourself in the sandals of the people that this story was being written to. They were just called out of a pagan land with pagan deities and all kinds of creation pagan creation stories, most of them involving multiple gods who ironically seem to be awfully dependent on the people that they created um, and cruel to them for their own existence. And God is calling them from this land to a land that is deemed to be so wicked that God is sending this invading group of marauders to go in and wipe the slate clean. So put yourself in those shoes for a second, and that's your historical context when you receive the book of Genesis. And then you get this book telling you about a God that's altogether different from what you experienced when you came out of Egypt, altogether different from what you're going to experience as you go into that land. He existed in the beginning. He existed without us. He did not need us. We did not offer him something to complete him like the pagan creation narratives. We can't offer something to complete him because this God that we're now learning about doesn't have anything that's incomplete that we would be able to complete because he exists as already wholly complete in himself. So just think about a few things that you can glean from the holy and uniqueness that he is showing as he's kind of comparing this to the pagan narratives from the first couple of words here. So first of all, this God pre-exists all creation. He exists apart from his creation. He is going to be inseparably connected to his creation, so much so that he's even going to come and die for his creation. And we're told in Revelation that before the foundation of creation, he already had been chosen to die for that creation. But first... He had to create to begin with because before he created, there was no creation to even engage. I mean, it's nuts when you really just start thinking about how far this one verse can take you. So he's a part of it, but he's wholly other and distinct from it. And he would be seen as holy. And he's reminding the people as you come out of this pagan land and as you go into this even more pagan land, don't forget me. 
Don't forget that I am holy and altogether unique, that I am not like the gods of these people, that I am the Lord your God who out of Israel. Number three, we learn that God intends for himself to be the compass by which all of creation will calibrate itself. Look, creation was supposed to be a mirror to help fix your gaze upward at the creator and then the compass begins to calibrate itself. That's why the creation starts with, in the beginning, God. And then as you read through creation, the next couple of weeks we're going to go through the creation story. Each step starts with, and God said. And then each day of creation ends with, and God saw. And on the seventh day, God rested, giving us the pattern for the Sabbath. And Sabbath was supposed to be a place to help remind us to cease from work and to recalibrate ourselves, to look and remind ourselves of in the beginning God. And that's why our weeks begin with the Sabbath, to remind us, refocus. This God is supposed to be your compass that takes you through the week. When you leave here and you go to start your jobs on Monday, that's why you come and worship on the Sabbath, to recalibrate your hearts in worship. And be able to remember, you are my compass. You are my guiding light, Lord. So this whole creation, beginning throughout, and finished with this idea of pointing our hearts back to the true north. And then we're given the Sabbath each week to remind us and to have things like communion, to be able to stop and remind us and say, hey, set that compass again. Take your eyes off this secondary stuff. Fix your eyes on him. Let him be your guiding light. Romans 1 kind of gives you a reverse creation narrative to explain what it looks like when we gum up the whole process. You can turn there if you want. It's also projected up behind me. But it says that creation was supposed to be enough to make it evident that we were supposed to look deeper still, uh, to continue to the one who actually created the creation. As they continue to look, there are certain truths about God that are supposed to be made evident just by the marvel of his creation. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, for the creation, oh, that's chapter 8. That's a good verse too. Um, it says, for what can be seen about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So that creation was supposed to take your eyes and make them to go back upstream to see where the creation originally came from. And if you follow the river of creation back upstream, it's supposed to lead you to its genesis or to its beginning. But unfortunately, man begins to look at creation as you go on through Romans 1 and says, but I just want to terminate it here. I want to worship and serve the creation. Even though it's clear that creation is supposed to be enough to lead you upstream to a creator, Romans 1 is making it clear that this is a decision to worship the creation 
rather than to worship the Creator. And that decision is very much a choice. Look at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Remember back to what I said about how everybody uses circular reasoning at some point. Well, this passage makes the argument that if you try to use creation to make sense of and explain creation, that you're only going to come back to the worship of creation and that it's going to set your heart on a dangerous trajectory. But God actually says that as you do this process, that you are in the process of becoming foolish. The order that's demonstrated in God's creation is supposed to cause us to circle back to fix our eyes on the Creator. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of knowledge. It's supposed to take us back there. Number four, we learn that our God expects his creation to demonstrate aspects of his character. Turn to Job 38, where you can follow behind me. What a great passage. In this passage, Job is questioning God. If you're not familiar with the story of Job, the guy was going through more suffering than anybody I've ever met. And I've met some people that have gone through some tremendous suffering. But the Lord is allowing this man to go through this suffering so that he could speak through it to us. And it's, it's just been a book for those who are going through seasons where they're getting kicked in the teeth. And God has used it to encourage his people for a long, long time. But Job is starting to crack. And he's starting to get to this place where he's questioning God. And if the path that God has him on is truly what's best for Job. Job begins to think, maybe Job knows what's best for Job rather than God knowing what's best for Job. So God tells him in chapter 38, you know what? Get up, Job. Put on your big boy pants and pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Look at he says, and then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress like action, like a man, and I will question you. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you must know. Or who stretched out the line for it? Or where were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang for, together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? I could keep going and maybe I should sometime because that passage is awesome. Um, but God shares with him the intricate detail that he gave in creation. And he asks Job, when did I need to consult you for any of that? At what point did you have to direct my hand in showing me how to do my job, Job? And his point was, did I need to consult you? 
Or was I fully capable of being sovereign over that which I've created myself? Did I do a pretty decent job at this creation thing, Job? I mean, I just read eight verses. He goes on for four chapters doing this. Just one after another, after another, after another. Just kind of saying like, hey, Job, you think I got this on lockdown? You think I've got this figured out, man? And if you go on to read, I encourage you to do it. He's saying, Job, when I created, I had this thing figured out to even the most minute and tiny details. So God specifically starts getting into intricacies that Job specifically would have never even thought of to say, hey, you know those things that you never even thought to think of? I'm still thinking about that all the time because I'm God and that's the way my mind works. And I didn't need you to remind me. Man, and he's trying to show him, look, if I'm able to be so specifically sovereign over the most intricate details of creation that you'll never think about, then don't you think that I'm able to be sovereign over my creation to a degree where maybe you're not seeing the full spectrum of the picture of what I'm doing here? So God drops the hammer. And he makes this argument from his creation. He's saying, if I was able to be sovereign over all these things going into my creation, do you think that maybe, just maybe, I could be sovereign over the whirlwind that's going on in your life right now? That maybe I can be sovereign over the financial struggles, over the relational hardships, over the illnesses, over the chronic pain that prevails you. Maybe I'm big enough to be able to have those things all in the palm of my hand, Job. Think about that. Put yourself in Job's shoes for a moment. So as we contemplate creation for the next couple of weeks, I want to ask you the same question. You're in the shoes of Job. And you, you got boils all over you. You, you. you just lost your family. You just lost your income. You just lost your wealth. You're seeing all these things that you had amassed in your life being stripped away. And if God was able to be sovereign over all of the things that he created, do you think that maybe, just maybe, he could be sovereign over the things going on in your lives right now? It, I just want to encourage you that if there's anybody here that's just going through a bout of hardship where you know that you're getting crushed and you are in that place that Job was in and you need that reminder of Job 38 where he's saying, Job, I've had this, I've got this, and I'll continue to get this. Please don't leave here without praying with somebody because Satan is oh so good at taking that little whisper of saying, you know, I need to act on this and say, no, you don't. It's easier to just go home. Just leave. Grab somebody and pray and say, that's me. I'm stuck in that spot. And yes, I do believe that God is intricately able and does sovereignly superintends over all of his creation. But I'm having a hard time believing that that pertains to me. Anybody ever been there? I'll bet you you have. Number five, we learn that God's work in creation was a triune experience. I bring this up for a few reasons. Um, I don't know about you guys, 
But I fall into this pattern, and it's not a good pattern. The, the Lord's been trying to break me of this, and I think I've been reading my Bible more effectively. But I always saw the Old Testament, when I see the word God, I think God the Father. And then New Testament, I think of Jesus. And it's, it's a terrible way to divide your Bible. It's like the Old Testament, that was the Father's book. The Gospels, that's Jesus' book. And then we have Acts, give, give the Holy Ghost his little book. Um, and then the rest of it, you know, that's uh, back to uh, wherever. But we see right here in verse 2 that the Spirit was involved in his creation. It says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. And here's some things that we see from the New Testament. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and this Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. He's talking about Jesus, folks. And without Him, there was nothing that was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. It says, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, meaning Jesus again, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So who was involved in creation? The triune God, amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see this creation as this beautiful triune act within the Trinity. And the last point, before I get into some application, is we learn that creation demonstrated God's design of bringing order out of the chaos. Look with me one more time at Genesis 1-2. And the earth was without form and void. Just such a a curious Hebrew phrase, tohu vabahu. It was chaotic. It was just all of this stirring that was going on. And there's darkness, but over the face of all of that chaos, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We're going to actually get into specifically what the Spirit does next week, but one thing that we could see without having to go very far is that God has always been working in the midst of chaos. That's what it says right here in verse 2, that he was working to bring order over that chaos. That was the truth that God was trying to recalibrate Job to. He was saying, Job, I know that there is a bunch of chaos going on in your life right now. But God, Job, let me remind you of who I've been to you and who I've always been. I've always been the God that's bringing order in the midst of this chaos. I've always been the Ruach. I've always been that spirit that's hovering over the Dov Ahu in your life. I have always been that God. Paul actually reminds the Corinthians of this truth as well in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, where he tells them, our God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. He's the strong tower of your life to run into when there's confusion in your life. He's not the author of the confusion. 
And his spirit wants to bring order in the midst of chaos and confusion. So if that's you and you're there, I just want to ask you, would you take the step of faith to cry out to your God and say, God, bring order in my chaos. God, I need your spirit to be hovering over the surface of this mess here and bringing order in the midst of this insanity. Please, Lord, bring some kind of understanding to my confusion. Recalibrate my eyes and set them on you, Lord. Stay my heart that it may rest in thee and thee alone. And I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that is a prayer that your God desires to answer in Christ. So a few application points. These come right from the points from our text. Six application questions from the six truths that we learned about God from the six days of creation. One, God is very okay with his own self-authentication, so we should be too. Our job is not to argue people into the existence of God. Our job is to be ready to give an account for the hope that's within us and to do it with gentleness and reverence. Number two, God is holy and unique and should be honored as holy and unique. There is no baseline to compare God to in his creation and try to do so only lessens who he truly is. Number three, God makes it clear that the story is about him and he is our compass our stories should be his stories and Christ should be our compass number four God did many awesome things in his creation that we cannot understand in our finite minds so we must avoid the pitfall of Job of trying to confine him by our finite minds I came up with this little tongue twist here, but I, I, I thought it was good. I, I was impressed, actually. It says, try to define him with the finite, and you will, con you will confine the infinite. I can't even say it, but I like it. Try to define him with the finite, and you will confine the infinite. Number five, creation was an act of the triune God that was done by, through, and for his son, Jesus Christ teaching us a model of worship, that we do this all by, through, and for the glory of Jesus. And number six, God is bringing order out of the chaos. He is hovering over that which is formless and void and confusing in your lives and seeks to bring order from that chaos as you fix your eyes on the compass and fix them on him. So on that on the seventh day, he rested, so my seventh point is going to be to say amen.